What happened is that I had always been interested in this area of the world in terms of culture. I loved films by Krzysztof Kieślowski, his three-color series of films, three colors, blue, white, and red, which he shot in France. So I actually, I didn't know Poland at all. And when I met my my wife and I traveled for the first time to Poland, I was a little bit nervous because I thought, okay, now she's coming home with a German boyfriend who knows what, what might happen, right? I don't know. For a Pole, actually, they don't have much experience of hearing what British people speaking Polish sound like or what Italians and so on. So it, the, the, the experience is so alien to them. There isn't a kind of rule book that they, they yeah. can observe yeah. in dealing with a foreigner speaking their language. Poles themselves find it so difficult to adjust to a foreigner speaking their language. When uh, a Westerner starts speaking Polish, they're either so overjoyed that they never stop talking about it, <laughs> making it very difficult for you to speak, or, or they're, they're so incredulous that they, they won't speak it with you. They, no, no, this can't be happening, and they carry <laughs> on speaking to you in English. When we were traveling together as a team, as a couple, we had great plans for traveling the world. And when suddenly we became parents, uh, my wife was uh, worrying uh, if she could still travel. And uh, we decided that we will do everything possible to make traveling with child our goal. And it's our mission uh, to encourage people to travel uh, as a family. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polkast. Poland all that jacks. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to 42nd episode of Polcast. This episode will be released on Sunday, April the 30th, on the radio in Toronto broadcast on April 29th and 30th. Which means that without really noticing it, we have reached our first anniversary. Yeah, that's right. Our podcast was launched on May 1st last year. The official launch ceremony took place in June at the Polish consulate in Toronto, of which we have very fond memories. That's true. So, because it's our first birthday, it's an obvious opportunity for summaries. Well, we have produced 42 episodes. We have interviewed over 100 people from over a dozen countries and four continents. Yes, and we have presented to you over 100 stories about Poland's history, geography, language, cuisine, traditions, etc., etc. Polcast has exceeded 180,000 downloads. And yet, despite making the first ever such an innovative global media project in English, we have achieved it without any financial support from the government of the country it promotes successfully all over the world. No politics, we declared. But others have not only noticed, but also awarded our podcast with prestigious distinctions. 
the Golden Owl awarded to Poles around the world annually in Vienna. The Canadian National Ethnic Media Council Award. Polkas was also featured in many media in Poland, Canada and the US, TV, radio and press. And upon our listeners' request, after Christmas, we changed the frequency and length of our episodes. Instead of a weekly half-an-hour episode with just two interviews, we now produce one-hour-long podcast every four weeks with three interesting interviews. Our audio episodes are accompanied by our very popular website, mypodcast.com, where you can read more about the people we interview and what they do, as well as leave your feedback, which we always appreciate. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, so if you like what we do, tell others, like us, share, bring more listeners. And a very warm thank you to our collaborators. Ola Turkiewicz for music, Eva Henry for graphic design, and our Polish cuisine experts, Laura and Peter Żerański for smacznego, eating Polish. And Michalina Paczynska for our logo. Well, happy anniversary, Tomek. Happy anniversary, Małgosia. Dziękuję bardzo. Ja też. Smacznego! We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Classic Polish Recipes and Classic Polish Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Today we're talking about apple raisin cake an easy, mouth-watering dessert that works all year round. I remember my mom telling me that many classic Polish baked goods trace their roots to rural villages and farms where the seasons and the harvests dictated what landed in the kitchen and on the table every week. In our modern world of upscale grocery stores, most recipes can be prepared year-round. Ingredients are transported from wherever on our planet they are plentiful, to wherever they are scarce. So seasonality has become less of an issue. Of course, if you want to buy local, farmers markets are the way to go for freshly harvested and locally grown items. And yes, they often do taste better, at least to us. These days, apples are available just about all year round. And apples go especially well with cinnamon and walnuts. I looked up these three ingredients together on the internet. And I found recipes from Poland, Israel, Australia, and Egypt, just to name a few. Apple raisin cake is one of our absolutely favorite desserts, and one that we often prepare for sampling at book signing events. Laura makes it in mini cupcake size, and it works beautifully. It's very easy to prepare, and the recipe is foolproof. And you know, it doesn't hurt that it's super popular with all our friends. To start... You'll need butter, sugar, eggs, flour, baking soda, cinnamon, raisins, chopped walnuts, and of course four cooking apples peeled and shredded. Granny Smith or any variety that's not so sweet would be a great choice. Beat the butter with the sugar until creamed. A standing mixer is perfect for this job, but if you don't have one, a hand mixer will work just as well. Add the eggs and beat some more. Add the flour cinnamon, baking soda, and beat three more minutes. 
Fold in the fruit and walnuts. Then pour the finished batter into a high, buttered and floured, 10-inch springform cake pan and shake it around for even distribution. Bake it at 350 degrees Fahrenheit for 60 to 90 minutes. The aroma from that kitchen will fill the whole house and make everyone come running to check it out. Test the cake at 60 minutes for doneness. I usually stick a toothpick in the middle, and if the toothpick comes out almost dry, the cake is done. Take it out of the oven and let it cool for 15 minutes before releasing the pan. You'll get 12 to 16 portions depending on size of slices and how hungry your guests are. The full recipe for this cake and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the article on August 15, 2014. Smachnego! The interview you're about to hear is quite special. It was a rare opportunity to have an honest conversation about Poland's and Germany's painful past, World War II, with a German. You met Johannes Schneider a while ago on podcast when he talked about being married to a Pole and about his feelings about Poles and Poland. Here, Johannes, born and educated in Germany, but also having lived in Austria and now a citizen of Canada, answers my tough questions in an amazingly open way and shares his feelings about his country's past. When you were growing up and when you were getting educated in the school system in Germany, how much mm-hmm. about the war did you learn? Well, I, I, have, to, I have to say I, I, um, I wasn't educated in the German public uh, school system. I went to a private school, uh, uh, the Rudolf Steiner School, and they have kind of a, their own curriculum. But it's, it's everywhere in Germany, and you, you, are, you are confronted by it everywhere. When you watch TV, when you have discussions with family and friends, it's very present. And uh, so I think people in general are, are quite well informed and and educated in this regard. But was World War II, how was it presented? Well, lot, many facts, but in general, it's it's very clear that that the Germans were the bad guys and and that we were liberated after the war liberated by the Russians and the Americans and British. And uh, so very critical, and there is no doubt that uh, Germany started the war. I think it's very clear from the very beginning. Is that the case everywhere? Is that, is that where you, I know you didn't actually attend a public school, but maybe you are aware of what kind of program they have or syllabus they yes, have. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, I think really that's, that's actually something I, I, I feel very positive in, in regards to Germany, that Germany really confronted itself with its own uh, terrible history. And I, I think in general people are really aware of what happened and are well educated and i think well that might be an exaggeration like an exaggeration but i th- i think in my opinion the germans are nowadays probably the the least nationalistic people in in europe so when i grew up if you would say i'm proud to be a german that was that made you very suspicious and i remember for example when you watched the national soccer team and when they had to sing the anthem they didn't sing it they 
listened to the melody, but they didn't sing it. When was that? And I think until 2006, when the World Cup uh, was in Germany. I lived in Austria at that time. But um, I've been told, and I saw it on, on TV, I was really surprised to see German flags and cars driving with German flags and people celebrating with a German flag. Because before that, that was very, very uncommon. Germans really have very difficult or disturbed relationship to their own nationality. Without any doubt, that's caused by the history of the Second World War. Probably even, even World War I as well. I wouldn't say I'm proud to be a German, but I'm proud how Germany kind of re reprocessed its own history. And uh, especially if you compare it to Japan. And in my case also, so I'm German and Austrian, and I lived for 13 years in Vienna and in Austria. And so I, I know the Austrian side as well. And the, the Austrians, in my opinion, were as much perpetrators as the Germans. Uh, well, actually, Hitler was, was born in Austria. In, in Austria. He was a he was an Austrian, and, and at that point, it, there was no distinction between Austria and Germany. And my, my own grandmother, she was, she, was, she was rooting for Hitler, and, and really badly in Vienna. But if you talk to Austrians, or if you, if you look at how the entire history is, is being reprocessed in Austria, in Austria, so many people see Austria as the first victim of Nazi Germany. And therefore, they are not responsible at all. And, and yeah, they, they were primarily victims, which is ridiculous. That's really something I admire in Germany, that they really, at some point, they started to look into their own history and starting to really painfully work through it. And that's never finished, and it's still happening. I think as a German, you have no right to feel anyhow as a, as a victim of what happened during World War II. There's no way you can see yourself as a victim or to blame America or the Russians or the French or the British or the Polish. Or I, I totally understand when, when people show revenge after what happened. When Germans had to, had to, to escape what's nowadays Western Poland. So, for example, the city where, where my wife was born, Koszalin, between Szczecin and Gdansk. So that used to be a German city. And when I came there, it's, there's a German name, Köslin, and you see the architecture, the old core of the city looks like a northern German town and, and, and very, very familiar. But I think if people had to escape and had to, to leave their homes, and yeah, it's because what what Germany did. What I find especially tragic, and which I think is really a, like an accident in history, that I think it was especially dangerous that that Germany turned this in this direction. Because I think the Germans, they, they have the, the, the tendency to follow rules without questioning it. I think they are the perfect soldiers. Something like this, well, it happened in, in Italy too, but the Italians are much more individualistic and less disciplined. The Germans, they like to, even today, if you look at people traveling, the Germans like to travel in groups. And there's one guy in front and the leader and telling them what to do. I think there's something in the German mentality where the people, they like to be told what to do. It's so difficult to have to deal with this past. And on the other hand, in every country, you need mm -hmm. to have a positive 
uh, identity, some sort of uh, uh, even this pride, not going too far, because as, as we know, nationalistic pride can lead to really bad things, not just in yeah. Germany, but in many countries. But but just, you know, it, it, it's normal that every country needs to have some sort of image, uh, some sort of ideology of patriotism, being proud of being. How, how does that work in the case of Germany? Yeah, in the case of Germany, it's it's a, it's really especially complicated, and I think the the reason, for example, why the Germans are so into the idea of a united Europe is actually because they don't like to identify too much with their own identity or their identity as a German nation, because because it's it's not easy to actually embrace a, a German national pride or feeling or whatever. I think Germans are are proud of. The, the thriving economy and and Mercedes Benz and all the cars and soccer and um, I had many discussions with Germans because many people in my generation they they think okay I'm not responsible for what happened and at some point we have to close the chapter and that's it actually I don't agree because I think it's a part of our history and you are born into a family history into a, a history of your nation and it's part of you even if you were born in my case like 30 years after the the war ended i think if you are proud of german culture of goethe and schiller and uh, all the composers like beethoven and richard wagner and bach and and all the thinkers and uh, if you're rooting for the german soccer team during euro cups and world cups you cannot deny that World War II and the Holocaust and, and all what happened is also part of our heritage and also part of, of our history. And I think you have to be aware of it. In my case, I personally don't feel responsible for it. But if I look at my at my family's history, there, there are some bright spots, but also some very dark spots. And it's part of my socialization and it's part of me somehow. Does it hurt you? Yeah, is it, yes. Is it I would painful? Somehow it is, yes. And and I remember from uh, from school we we visited the concentration camp of Buchenwald. It's really hard to describe. That's unthinkable. It's I I somehow feel responsible as a German, but somehow also just as a human being because how can people treat other human beings like like that? It, it's beyond everything you can ima um, you can imagine. But I think if you are somehow you 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 feel related to your culture and to your nation or however you want to call it, uh, you have to take the entire package, and that's a very very important part of our heritage. This interview with Johannes will be continued in our next episode, when you will hear more about his relationship with Poles and Poland about his native country's attitude to Poland, as well as his thoughts about the future. As in every episode, we ask non-Poles about their observations about Poles in Poland. Roberto lives and works in Poland as a radio journalist. Uh, today, uh, we have Roberto Gania. Roberto... Please tell us a little bit about yourself before you came to this country. Of course. I'm, I'm Roberto. I'm Maltese. For people who do not know, it's, if you think of Italy as a boot, it is right under the Italian boot, which is only geographical. 
when I first came to to Poland um, in the year 2004, both Malta and um, Poland had just joined the European Union. And as a young man, I wanted to um, learn about this new group of countries my country had just been in, and I wanted to learn more about it. Poland was one of the countries that joined the European Union. Why Poland? Funny question. What happened is that I had always been interested in this area of the world in terms of culture. I loved films by Krzysztof Kieślowski, his three-color series of films, three colors, blue, white and red, which he shot in France. Um, another Polish artist was... Um, Roman Opałka, who I only happened to learn of when I was visiting Paris. In another area, in another artistic area, I, in my latest years at university, I used to practice theatre, and we used to study the work of Jerzy Grotowski, a Polish theatre theoretician. So there was there were always things, even back in Malta, which interested me about Poland. So I said, perhaps if I move to Poland, the heart or the origin the place of origin of all these people who interest me and who fascinate me so much, perhaps I will learn so much more and discover so many interesting other things. Unfortunately, this was not the case. These uh, three people are still my three favorite Polish artists in, the, in three different areas. So was moved to Poland a kind of disappointment? Not at all, not at all. In terms of art, perhaps, it, it was because my expectations were so high, but moving to Poland was far from being a disappointment. It was, it was, it did not meet my expectations. My expectations, if I had at that time closed my eyes and if I had any artistic talent and had drawn you a picture, I would have drawn um, an old woman with a scarf over her head running away with some loaves of bread under her arms fleeing from some burnt-down building over over a small bridge. That was a picture I had of Poland. I had never met anyone who'd ever been to Poland. I really had no idea. When I first came here, um, before the show, we were talking about the center of Warsaw, the area around the main train station with the big, iconic Palace of Culture and Science. When I first arrived there, I came by bus from the airport and I saw all the billboards, the big name brands on the neon signs on top of the high skyscrapers, I was really impressed, and I and I and I really and I only at that moment did I realize what a big mistake I had made in thinking that Poland was this kind of backwater provincial city, because I realized that Warsaw was in fact a real European capital. What about people of Poland? Are they much different than people of Malta? Not at all. There are many similarities, despite what what people look like. Maltese people are dark, obviously, and Polish people are tall and blonde. Um, but apart from that, they are very similar. Um, one of the traits of 
pause is there um, I wouldn't even know how to translate it in in Polish is the word goszczyno so they're hospitable we Maltese are very hospitable we don't we don't it's not something that we are proud of like the like the Poles are about their hosp- hospitality there are other things that are unfortunate that that we are similar and one is the perhaps the work ethic it's not the best the most robust work ethic i know either either in poland or in malta and if you could bring one thing from malta to poland what would that be that would certainly be our sea the blue mediterranean sea which is something that i miss every single day unfortunately living in warsaw i don't get to see the sea at all there's the vistula river obviously passing through the middle of the city but that's something very different you can't just jump in the vistula river any day of the year and have a swim it's a bit dirty and it's extremely cold Powiedz, jak się przygotowujesz do świąt. Nie miałem czasu, żeby się przygotować do, do świąt, ale było spotkanie w pracy. Mamy co, co rok mamy świąteczne spotkanie w pałacu w Natolinie. To jest bardzo mały pałac z XVIII wieku, który, jeśli pamiętam dobrze, czatorysy zbudowali i potem potocy mieszkali tam też, więc to jest bardzo historyczne miejsce i park jest bardzo ładny, więc takie, takie spotkanie świąteczne są, są bardzo fajne tam i cały zespół jest tam nie tylko z, z kolegium europejskiego, ale też zespół tych, którzy zajmują się parkiem też, więc wszyscy są tam od profesorów do ogrodników i to jest bardzo fajne też, że wszyscy jesteśmy razem jako zespół, więc to było fajnie, ale oprócz tego byłem tak strasznie zajęty cały czas, że nie miałem czasu do, do przygotowania się. Teraz jestem u znajomych blisko Legionowa na wsi. This conversation in Polish took place just before Easter. Those of our listeners who speak Polish will certainly be impressed to hear that I spoke to a guy who is British. Richard Washington, whom you met in episode 41, chairing the monthly discussions of Ladies and Gentlemen's Club, has lived in Poland for almost seven years. He works for the Warsaw location of the College of Europe, a bilingual English and French educational institution, providing postgraduate courses for students from all over the world. Richard's Polish is remarkably fluent and grammatically fully correct. I was really curious about his experience of learning Polish. Richard, you're British. You were born in Britain and you came to Poland at the age of... 38. Which means you were an adult. And how many languages did you speak at that point? At that time, I, I only spoke uh, French and very bad Dutch. I mean, I learned French at school, uh, but I wasn't very good at it. And then when I was about 29, I decided that it was ridiculous that I was monolingual. So I decided to learn French and, and became quite fluent in it. Uh, and then and then taught myself Dutch because it's a language I should speak for complex family reasons, but I don't. Okay. Now, when you came to Poland, you had no Polish. Can you tell us why you came to Poland? 
I, I'd taken a complete career change. Well, I, I hoped to have a career change, and I'd started studying. Uh, I studied for a master's in the UK, and then as a result of studying for that master's, I heard through one of my professors that it was possible to come and study in Poland at the place where I now work, the College of Europe in Natalin in Warsaw. And uh, I studied for a year there, uh, another master's degree, which I received a scholarship for. So I was really lucky. It was incredible because I, I applied age 38 thinking that this is completely, you know, as, as you might say in Polish, from the moon. But I, I got the scholarship and I was really lucky. And I had this year of being a 25-year-old again. But my plan was not to stay. My plan was a kind of vague notion that I could go and work in Brussels, maybe in lobbying or uh, something else, work in the European Parliament, maybe as an assistant to an MEP, that kind of thing. That's what I, I hope to do, hence the French as well. And uh, then I got a job working in the academic department of the, the college that I now work in. And um, the rest is history. I've stayed. I'm really interested in the story of, of your study of Polish, of your learning of Polish, because your Polish now is really impeccable. Like, you do all the right things. <laughs> your yeah. pronunciation is amazing. Right. Your endings are fine. Everything is perfect. How did you get to that stage? And when did you get to that stage? It's probably hard to, to actually pinpoint it, right? Because it's, it's a process. But at which point in time did you feel that you were okay? Well, it was a very long journey. And uh, as I often say, if I knew how long it was going to be, I don't think I would have started, but luckily I didn't know quite how long the journey was going to be when I set out. When I first came to Poland, I had what were called survival Polish lessons. So I learned to say one or two things like uh, a beer, please, or, um, you know, uh, taxi and, 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 and that kind of thing. So I, so I could at least get around. But I didn't really take to the language. And to be really honest, I didn't really like it. Uh, I found it strange to hear. It didn't, it did, I couldn't hear any music in it. It was just a lot of consonant sounds. And I think that's often, often the reaction of, of foreigners when they first hear Polish. And then after a year of being in Poland, it was, uh, and when I found out I was going to stay, when I got the job, I felt a bit ashamed that I'd made absolutely no progress during that year of study. So I decided that, right, you know, now I'm going to stay in Poland. I'm going to learn it. And I thought it'll probably take me two years. So I started learning by myself with um, grammar books, which is why I'm a little bit obsessive about Konsulski, uh, because I learned all of this grammar. I actually which means endings for those of our listeners who uh, don't speak Polish. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. And then I started having lessons because I was given free lessons at work, and I happened to have some very good teachers who really inspired me. And through them... After about two and a half to three years, I got to the point where I could hold conversations and watch television and listen very hard to the radio and more or less uh, speak in a way that was working towards fluency. But I wouldn't say it was fluency, and it was still very frustrating because if I compare it to what happened to me with French, where after two years I was basically talking pretty fluently, it, it wasn't at that stage. And it took me another two years after that to get to the point where I was starting to be able to hold uh, um, all my business conversations in Polish, uh, write all my emails in Polish. No, I mean, I don't write all my emails in Polish, but I could if I wanted to. Um, and uh, cope with telephone conversation, because as you probably know, uh, talking on the telephone is one of the hardest things to do in a foreign language. So it was a good five years of, of daily study. And I really did study every single day without fail. 
And when you say you studied every single day, was it what, reading, listening, talking to people? It was everything. I mean, at first it was it was literally study. So it was doing grammar exercises and going through grammar books and uh, learning uh, verb conjugation and all this kind of thing. And for the first three years, it was literally daily doing both the homework my teachers were setting me, but then also setting myself homework. So I bought myself loads of books and I used to sit there on, on Saturday afternoons in my flat learning how to say spredach. Richard, was that useful, though? Because a lot of people say, well, you know, I mean, it's not about learning, rote learning of endings, inflections. Was that useful? Yeah, it was, because I, I think there are two reasons. One, um, it makes you much more confident. And the language ceases to be a huge undiscovered country. You start to be able to really make out the landscape. Whereas before then, if, if, if you don't learn the declination, this is my attitude to it. If you, if you think of it as a frightening thing, you will never be able to learn. It will, it will block you from being able to journey deep into the language because it's a really important part of the language. And the other problem is that actually Poles find it very difficult to listen to you if you're not saying their language properly. And I think that becomes a barrier as well because they'll tend to take pity on you. I think, well, there's, there's no point us carrying on like this. Let's go to English. And it's hard for you to make progress. If we could find some way of kind of not scaring people with the grammar and yet teaching them a grammar, I think we'd crack this one. <laughs> what was the most difficult bit? The verbs. Oh, you mean like when you talk about endings. But just generally, was pronunciation the scariest or the most difficult? Was it uh, comprehension? Or I'm just wondering, it's just such a huge thing to learn a language. If you were to make a list of three or four things that were really the most difficult things for you, what would they be? Okay, well, you said pronunciation. At the beginning, pronunciation was the really big challenge because I just said the word, you know, to to sell, spredać. Yes, That combination of sp, sh, it's so difficult to form in one's mouth if, if, if you're an English speaker because we simply don't have that combination. And also because it's spelled S-P-R-Z, which, of course, once you've learned that the, that's what the combination of letters always sounds as, it makes sense. But before you, you, you've learned that, the psychological barrier as an English speaker that you have when you see that combination of uncombinable letters from our <laughs> point of view is so shocking that it makes you step away and go, no, no, I can't learn that. It's a bit like also the word for happiness or good luck, szczęście. I mean, that's S-Z-C-Z is the first combination of letters in the beginning. I mean, it, it, it's so shocking that, that you, you, you don't know what to do with it. And I think, so I think that there's a, there's a barrier you have to get over. And weirdly enough, the person who taught me to get over that was the guy who was the concierge in the flat that I lived in in those days, because I was complaining to them saying, well, I don't know how to cope with all these letters. And he said, but if you just say them one after another, as long as, you know, get over the fact that S-Z is and C-Z is and you just say them together, then you've got it. And it never changes. It's not like English where everything's weird and, and we sometimes, you know, we pronounce TH differently depending on how we, well, how the word feels. Because um, I, I know that if you're an English uh, uh, specialist as you are, you know, there is a logic there, but sure, I, sure. I don't know what it is. So that was the first thing, pronunciation. Uh, second, second thing uh, was the declination. Uh, and that's the thing that everybody panics about. So the changing of the endings of nouns, because, it, you know, even people's names are uh, changing in Polish, which is completely weird for everybody. And also um, adjectives and numerals. Oh, yeah. And it, and it's just this endless kind of, uh, you know, you, you think you've learned the rules and then you find out there's another 
set of rules. But the, the thing about that is there are rules. So the question is, it's a matter of time. You really just have to try and learn them, I think. The third thing after that was then the, the, the verbs, which are, um, if, if the, na- the nouns are a kind of uh, mass of uh, rules that you have to learn, the verbs are an incredibly beautiful tapestry of kind of folklore. It's because they don't have the same Latin kind of structure to them. They're, they're like a, a piece of folk art. And learning those is, is, is quite a different experience, and you have to make a kind of mental leap. Um, but then the other thing, the fourth thing that's really difficult is just that Poles themselves find it so difficult to adjust to a foreigner speaking their language, who's not a Slav. I think they, they expect Ukrainians to be able to speak Polish and find it quite irritating if they don't and aren't particularly sort of uh, gentle with that. But whereas when uh, a Westerner comes, uh, you know, I call myself a Westerner, uh, and starts speaking Polish, they're either so overjoyed that they never stop talking about it, making it very difficult for you to speak, or, or they're, they're so incredulous that they, they won't speak it with you. They, no, no, this can't be happening. And they carry on speaking to you in English or, 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 or think, take pity on you if you're struggling. So stop you from speaking in, and speak to you in English. So, so I, I must say that, um, it, it's, I've had to learn to find strategies for dealing, dealing with these reactions that people have. So Poles are in some ways helpful in the sense that they are so happy that you speak, but they don't really help you, right? Yeah, they don't know what, you know, if you go to Britain, uh, you can be pretty rest assured that if you speak another European language, you're not going to find many Brits who can speak your language. So you're just forced to speak English. And, and British people or Americans or Canadians, you know, we're so used to hearing foreigners struggling through our language, we just kind of deal with it. I'm not saying in all cases, and I'm sure that many, you know, uh, non-English speakers living in English-speaking countries have their own horror stories and particular issues that they've faced. But, you know, we are used to it. And I know what a Pole sounds like speaking English. I know what a Greek person speaks sounds like speaking English. I know what an Italian and a French and so on. For a Pole, actually, they don't have much experience of hearing what British people speaking Polish sound like, or what Spaniards speaking Polish, or mm-hmm. Italians, and so on. So it, the 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 experience is so alien to them. There isn't a kind of rule book that they they can observe in dealing with a foreigner speaking their language. Are, are there many non-Poles, especially British people, but other foreigners as well in Poland who actually manage to learn their language? Um, there are. I know, I know a lot of expats. I mean, perhaps we should just call people immigrants, really, because I don't know what makes an expat different from an immigrant um, uh, living in, in Poland who don't and who are convinced it's too difficult. And I know a lot of people like that. Having said that, I do meet some people who've who really mastered it. And then I meet other people who've done this extraordinary thing. And I have enormous respect for them where, you know, they didn't have all the advantages I had, where I had... Uh, teachers for free. I also earned a reasonable amount of money, so I was able to pay for extra lessons or so. And I, I know people who've come over and have worked in, in service industries or have, you know, I know one guy who runs a Christian mission, uh, and he's learned to speak Polish and speaks it quite fluently, but it's full of mistakes um, and it's not grammatically correct, but he has assembled for himself a Polish that works, that is communicative, and he can hold his own in, in a way with a kind of confidence, which I'm quite envious of, because I stand there when I'm speaking, worrying about making lots of mistakes and hearing myself making them and kind of going, oh, damn, I got that ending wrong. Oh, no, I said the wrong verb. And, you know, and he doesn't care. He just 
talks. I saw you on television being invited to um, to do an interview in Polish about Brexit. How do you cope with those situations? Because that must be very stressful. It is. It is very stressful. When I first did a radio interview, I remember I, mean, I, I did it with a very nice uh, interviewer, and he helped me a lot. You know, occasionally I couldn't find words, and, and he intervened a few times when I was drying up. The adrenaline is very high when you're doing an interview like that. So you're just totally focused on getting a sentence out. And your brain works so fast in those circumstances that sometimes you realize that if you carry on down one particular thought, you're going to hit an area where you simply haven't got the vocabulary to express what you want to say. So you kind of cut yourself off and, and find another rather roundabout way of saying what you wanted to say or, or simply change the subject so you can say something which you, you've got the vocabulary for. So th there is a, a certain amount of acrobatics you have to do and after these kind of interviews i am absolutely exhausted the television one you're talking about it was only eight minutes long i felt like i'd been talking for four hours when i came out you know i was so tired after having done it which is actually it goes back to something when we were right at the beginning of this talk you you, you were very complimentary about my polish but when i'm speaking it i don't feel so satisfied maybe because i'm a bit of a perfectionist but also because it's a lot of hard work I'm having to really, really work hard. I'm sure many, you know, Poles living in Canada um, who've learned English shall also have that experience that they're, they're, they're having to work very hard. Do you think you still have a lot to learn? Yeah, I do. I um, was reading a article in Rzeczpospolita. It's the kind of center-right newspaper. I was reading it today. It was about uh, the goings-on, recent going-on in the... Uh, in the governing party and uh, it was written in this extraordinary style that was both very erudite and very colloquial at the same time and i realized that i i was thrown by the erudite vocabulary and the very colloquial vocabulary so i realized that there are a whole continents of vocabulary which I, i i just don't know which i still need to learn so that that would be lovely if one day i could just pick up any any book or anything and, and just be able to read it i have the same problem when i try to read novels in polish i i've learned polish very much from reading newspapers and watching television and there's a there are whole areas of vocabulary which i, I simply don't know coming soon and it's the time when people travel. Sergiusz Pinkfart, a Pole who now lives in Liverpool, knows all about traveling. The list of his travel destinations is endless. But what's truly special is that he travels not only with his wife but also with their small child. And these numerous trips have become not only his and his wife's passion but also their profession. His career path is really interesting. Through music, he got to journalism, and now, apart from being a journalist, he writes books and an extremely popular blog called Dziecko w Drodze, where he and his wife share their family's travel experience of traveling with a young child. You seem to, to be really in love with adventure, and it so happens that, uh, luckily, that this love is shared by your wife. So I was just wondering how long you have been traveling. Since... I remember, uh, of course, the first years uh, I was traveling only in my imagination. I remember uh, the significant year 1984, like in uh, Orwell. It was the hardest year 
probably in Poland, uh, just after the martial law. I was living uh, with my parents in small town Zakopane. My parents were working, my mom as a teacher, uh, my father as a chief of museum, and uh, there was no, absolutely no chance to, to travel uh, because Poland was the close country after the Iron Curtain. And in this moment, exactly in 1984, uh, friends of my parents made a present for them. Uh, they um, sent uh, some copies of National Geographic. Uh, and I remember beautiful magazine, colorful, about traveling, about uh, adventures. Uh, of course, uh, I had no idea what was written because uh, it was time that in Poland, uh, English language was not popular, especially in small towns uh, like Zakopane. Uh, but I rem- remember this feeling, uh, you know, uh, looking at the magazine and uh, watching these beautiful pictures. I uh, dreamed about traveling, and I was uh, sure that one day I will start traveling. I uh, started at university, musical university, musical academy uh, in Warsaw. Uh, I was studying violin uh, because my goal was to travel. Uh, you know, it was funny because uh, in Zakopane, uh, many friends of my parents were musicians. They came to Zakopane to uh, make a concert in Atma Museum where my father was was a director, and uh, after a concert, they uh, met in my parents' apartment, and they were uh, talking about uh, travels, and uh, I was thinking that it's only way to travel in this communist time, because uh, normal people couldn't travel, but artists could. So I decided to become a musician. And I graduated musical academy and I started to travel in uh, in radio symphony orchestra in Warsaw. But it was time when the iron iron curtain fell down, and normal people could travel if they have money. I was dreaming about traveling on my own, so I decided to be a journalist. My uh, dream came true. Uh, I was a journalist, chief of international department in Viva magazine. It's, it's popular color. Uh, magazine like uh, Paris Match. Uh, and I was traveling, traveling especially to uh, United States, to uh, Los Angeles, to Hollywood, to New York, uh, to London. I've been uh, in Canada also. Uh, but uh, after a few years, you know, uh, when the journalist industry started to decline uh, in um, first years of uh, 21st century, uh, I decided to uh, change my life. Again, I quit job to become a freelance blogger and journalist. In this moment, I had my wife on my uh, side. She's also a journalist, and uh, she's from the uh, travel journalist family. Uh, her parents are journalists and tour leaders. So she exactly uh, had the same dream. Her life was also dedicated to travel. So we... Uh, started to travel as a team, and after a uh, few years, uh, we uh, started to travel 
uh, as a whole family. Four years ago, you had a new acquisition to your family, which means your son was born. But the, what is interesting is that not only did it not change your habits, but on the contrary, you have continued, but in a new way. And this is exactly what I would like to talk to you about. Um, you, you created this wonderful program, a blog and website, which is called The Child on the Way, which has really double meaning, right? Dziecko w drodze in Polish language. So, so it's funny, uh, funny name for blog, uh, and it's parenting blog about travel. It was a funny story because when we were traveling together as a team, as a couple, we had great plans for traveling the world. And when suddenly we became parents, uh, my wife was uh, worrying uh, if she could still travel. And uh, we decided that we will do everything possible if child will be healthy to make traveling uh, with child uh, our goal. So yes. Krutek, who is now four years old, he has yes. traveled a lot with you? He made uh, twice uh, the equator uh, till today. Uh, we had to change our big goals because traveling uh, with child is different than traveling just as a couple. In Poland, uh, usually parents travel alone and they send their child to grandmothers or, or grandparents. And our goal is to encourage people uh, to travel together because uh, for us, it was discovering new world because traveling as a family, it's very different. We are traveling more deeply and on shorter distance, uh, we have to accommodate to, to small uh, child. Uh, but of course, we, we don't want to resign uh, of our goals. Uh, this traveling was so different, so interesting that we started to write blog in, uh, on the internet for our family and, and, and friends uh, on the beginning. And suddenly we discovered that this blog is very popular in Poland. Maybe because we are journalists. We are not interested in uh, writing only about personal things. We treat our blog like a, like a magazine because we, we want to discover the world on our own and we want to write about our experience through the eyes of, of parents. So you do give a lot of advice to people who've never done it before? Yes, it's our goal and it's our mission uh, to encourage people to travel uh, as a family. And uh, we try to discover some places in the, uh, in the world uh, which will be helpful for families. How many countries have you visited with your son? I think more than 20. Most of them are, of course, in Europe. But our best experience was on the border of, of Europe, in Georgia. Map of the world for parents is a little bit different than for people without children. The map of Europe. In the north, uh, it's very good infrastructure. You know, you have all these changing uh, tables uh, or uh, in, in special lavatories uh, for small children. Uh, all this infrastructure is absolutely great. But people are a little bit with distance to, uh, to parents. On uh, south of Europe, uh, it's opposite. So there is no infrastructure. Uh, don't try even to... Uh, find the changing table in former Yugoslavia countries or uh, in Greece uh, or in southern Italy. No way. But 
people are extremely friendly and no problem. You can take your, uh, your small child everywhere and uh, sit in the restaurant or in the bar uh, till late night. Georgia, it's southern country. People are so friendly for uh, families. I suggest don't go to Georgia without a child. If you, if you try uh, to visit Georgia with a small child, you will uh, be so privileged. Uh, everyone will treat you so friendly. People love children. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. our uh, son was eight months, I think, uh, when we've been to Georgia. And uh, it was the best experience for us uh, in traveling. Now, which one was the worst? Probably Germany was the country uh, where we felt a little bit that it would be, it would be better to, to be without without a child. Sometimes Poland, it's uh, unfriendly for families, but we work on this. And we, uh, last uh, summer, we've been traveling um, around Poland because we had a special project on our blog uh, in cooperation with uh, Ford companies. Uh, and we um, wanted to find the best places for uh, families in Poland, just for weekend. Poland, especially from the Canadian perspective, it's a very small country, and uh, you can reach every place uh, in few hours of driving. So uh, we wanted to uh, make a map of Poland with uh, interesting, family-friendly places and uh, places you can reach from every place in Poland in five hours of driving. So it was very interesting experience and uh, for us eye-opening because we thought that we know Poland very well, but we were wrong. Now uh, we know that uh, there is a lot of places to discover. People are interested in what we can uh, do more. Uh, sometimes they ask us uh, what crazy idea uh, we have now. Uh, so it mobilizes us to, uh, to do uh, research and to uh, think further. When you think about the future, uh, what is the craziest idea that you have for your traveling? The, cr- the craziest idea uh, is to uh, travel the Trans-Siberian Rail. And we wanted to do this uh, summer or this autumn. I think uh, now maybe it's the last year we can do it uh, because, you know, the political situation, uh, especially in uh, Eastern Europe, is more and more hard. Uh, maybe next year we'll have no uh, possibility to do it. Magda uh, went on this trip in 2003 and she remembered it as a, the greatest adventure in her life. Give us a few rules, something that you have discovered um, in these four years of traveling with your son. Just the most important thing that you would want to tell people. Slower pace. Before we had a child, we were driving four, five, six hours a day. Now we try to uh, to change rhythm for uh, traveling. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best travel we had together, uh, it was one month around France. It was my crazy idea to visit all the most important uh, Gothic cathedrals in, in France. Uh, and every day we have everyday routine. We started uh, early morning uh, with visiting uh, churches. Uh, after a few hours, when our child was started to, to be a little bit tired, uh, we uh, went on car. And 
three, four hours uh, in car, he was sleeping because he was he was tired. Uh, after four hours, we stopped in another place, and then we were visiting um, places, making uh, some meals, and resting. And it was great idea for traveling in families because everyone uh, was happy. Uh, our son was happy because he uh, he had a lot of um, things to do to uh, to see uh, to experience every day something's new, and uh, we avoided this this very stressful situation when you are traveling uh, by car and your uh, your child uh, is bored. Because your your blog and um, everything you do for parents with children traveling has been so popular, do you see that people have started really traveling more with children? Because that, as you say, and you're absolutely right, that in the past that was not the case. Yes, yes, I, I can see it. Every day uh, we've got emails from uh, from parents uh, who want to start traveling with uh, with children. Polish people love to travel, but most people dreamt about traveling alone uh, to uh, all-inclusive hotels. We hate this kind of traveling. We try to encourage people to discover the world on their own. And, of course, with children, it's not easy, but profit for you and for your child is great. Uh, we write about it, and people who uh, follow us uh, sometimes they they write on our Facebook fan page, so it's like a club of traveling parents, and I'm very proud of it because uh, Polish people uh, love to travel, and if they will travel uh, with their child and they will uh, show their uh, child how wonderful the world is, I think Poland will be a better country. We encourage you to visit our website, mypolcast.com, to learn more about Sergiusz and his wife's work and to listen to some very interesting parts of our conversation that did not find their way to the audio broadcast. of our podcast, as we said, we have covered a large number of stories and presented to you many amazing people. And it's our great pleasure to be able to update you on some of our interlocutors' new achievements, as well as some new developments in the stories we have featured. Donna Orbicas, an American writer, author of powerful autobiographical novel, My Sister's Mother, about her mother's and half-sister's traumatic Siberian past and its influence on the family's life in the U.S., was an honoree of the Society of Midland Authors 2016 Annual Award for the best book in the category Biography and Memoir. Donna Urbicas and her book were featured in our 23rd episode. And Aquila Polonica. In episode 39, we interviewed Terry Tegnazian, the founder of Aquila Polonica Publishing an award-winning independent publisher based in Los Angeles, specializing in publishing the Polish World War II experience in English. 
We're very pleased to inform you that their most recent book, Echoes of Tattered Tongues, Memory Unfolded by John Z. Guzlowski, won the Gold Award for Poetry in the 2017 Benjamin Franklin Awards. Listen to episode 39 to learn about Aquila Polonica. Congratulations to the winners! And the story of an amazing Hollywood career of the iconic Polish small Fiat. A tiny Fiat 126P, which every Polish family in the communist era was dreaming of and some actually had. As we told you in episode 35, Hollywood star Tom Hanks himself expressed admiration for this little funny car, posting photos of himself with one from Budapest and then two other. They went viral. Polish fans decided to buy one for their idol. A Polish woman from the very town where the factory was located organized a fundraising campaign through the fan page Bielsko Biała for Tom Hanks. And now we learn that the campaign got huge and turned into a massive charity drive. The community in the town of Bielsko Biała, where Fiat's 126 used to be produced, raised a quite a lot of money, but eventually the car for Hanks was paid for by a well-known Polish race car driver, Rafał Sonik. The other money raised will be going to the local pediatric hospital. Last weekend, there was a huge ball in Bielsko Biała with Tom Hanks talking to all the guests via satellite connection. Hey, look, everybody, this just in. There's a big ball going on. Uh, you're collecting money for the pediatric hospital in uh, Bielsko. I'm an American. I, I don't know if that's the pronunciation. I don't speak any Polish other than Fantastician! So Monica has gone nuts on this Fiat 1260. But I, looks like I'm gonna have to drive at some point in my life. Thank you, crazy. Hanks will be getting his own small Fiat in May in Los Angeles, where it will be transported for free by Lot Polish Airlines. <laughs> You've been listening to the 42nd episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For additional information, multimedia and links, please visit our website, mypolcast.com. While you're there, please leave your comments and share with us your thoughts, reactions and ideas. If you know of any interesting person or story that we should cover on Polcast, Please let us know. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. Thank you for listening to Polcast. And we leave you with a song known to all, one of the most famous pieces by Leonard Cohen, in its Polish version, translated and sung by legendary Polish artist, writer, journalist, singer and poet Maciej Zembaty. Ciemny akord kiedyś brzmiał Pan cieszył się, gdy Dawid grał Ale muzyki dziś tak nikt nie czuje 
otwarta i kwinta Tak to szło Raz wyżej w dur, raz niżej w mol Nieszczęsny król ułożył Alleluja Mając tylko Alem 